Welcome to Spiritual Charlotte, a safe space for all who seek. You are joining Kendall Heath and Debbie Chisholm as we journey into the heart of community for an authentic and candid exploration into the light. We are seekers just like you, holding a space for all of us, teachers and students together in community, conversation, and connection. Join us for an hour of heart-centered dialogue and discovery. Good morning, Spiritual Charlotte. It's Kendall tuning in for the first time this summer. Um, well, not this summer, this late summer. Um, in the whole month of August. I think we did one show at the beginning of August. Our last show was with Robbie Warren um, here in Charlotte, who has an a, a organization called um, Otter Woman Standing, I believe. And so if you didn't catch that episode, that'd be great to go back through. But today, you know, I'm just thrilled because we have one of our favorite progressive pastors coming on the show, Joshua Adam Scott, who is doing, I believe, his last episode with us uh, on the the Bible. We were doing kind of a un-Bible school with Josh. We were doing that other Bible school with Josh because he is a genius when it comes to um, the way that he teaches the Bible at Morgantown Community Church in Kentucky. And so I'm going to um, just talk to you guys for a minute while we get Josh called into the show. We've had some technical difficulties this morning, so um, he's just waiting patiently for me to give him the cues. But, um, you know, this, uh, this opportunity with Josh is always something that I look forward to because uh, as you know who listen to the show, Debbie and I, um, who is normally my co-host, uh, we really love Rob Bell, and Rob Bell has it called the Robcast, and there's just nobody that that we feel knows the, the Bible better than Rob Bell, except for our friend who we're lucky enough to actually know, Joshua Adam Scott. So I met uh, Josh at the Wild Goose Festival, not this summer where I saw him again, but the summer before, and that festival takes place in Hot Springs, North Carolina, and it's a progressive Christian festival um, and really a spiritual festival that happens there in the mountains, and there's speakers from all over the place, and um, Pastor Josh is part of the Open Network, which is a group of pastors who who, are, who don't fall under a particular denomination, um, but they support each other um, you know, around the country and possibly the world, I'm not sure. But um, he just had some fascinating things to say about being a pastor in small country towns and his journey from being um, more fundamental in his beliefs to to growing um, far and away from that. And so it's going to be awesome to uh, have him join the show this morning because today what we're really going to be talking about is Jesus. A lot of spiritual people have a have a hard time with uh, with Jesus, have a hard time with the Bible, have a hard time with Christianity, definitely have a hard time with churches. And so, um, you know, what we are um, up to today is just bringing some um, real biblical and scholarly conversation to that. Uh, being able to look at it through um, Josh's Bible brain and see what what is available to us that possibly we didn't think was available before in terms of how we 
reconcile um, who Jesus is, um, what his teachings really are about, and how some of that's gotten distorted over time. But, um, you know, and that will bring us to a conversation of who Jesus is not. And so this is just one perspective, but I always find that Josh's perspective um, grows me and um, certainly influences, you know, the direction that I take uh, here in my life in Lake Norman and uh, in the spiritual fellowship that I lead uh, at Lighthouse uh, Spiritual Center in Mooresville. So, um, you know, I think this morning we're going to ask the hard questions. Um, And if you find yourself... um, just feeling like you have to call into the show <laughs> just for saying something that is ruffling your feathers or or um, or getting you excited. Hold off. It's hard to answer the calls when we have Josh on, um, but he certainly will uh, probably answer that, uh, your question, or respond in some way in the dialogue that we'll be having this morning. So really looking forward to that. Um, In the meantime, as most of you guys know who listen to the show, I think we've got about 3,000 regular listeners at this point as we move into today, episode 38. But um, we are, uh, Debbie and I, have started an organization uh, here in Mooresville, North Carolina, which is at the top of Lake Norman, which is at the top of Charlotte, North Carolina. Our center is called Lighthouse Spiritual Center, and it's a center for personal development and spiritual development um, that is interfaith-oriented and really has a focus in um, personal and collective healing as well. And so if you haven't had a chance to look at that, you can go to um, that website, which is um, lighthousespiritualcenter.com. And, of course, you can always reach the Spiritual Charlotte website at spiritualcharlotte.com. And we do have active Facebook communities, so that's a great place um, to join us and um, be a part of the conversation. You know, the goal of Spiritual Charlotte is to be able to have um, open dialogue, conversation, community, and connection is our tagline. And that's dialogue around um, all things spiritual and religious because, you know, these journeys are very personal and we really believe there needs to be a safe space to have these discussions. So um, that's what we're up to here. We always say isolation is a silent killer, and um, certainly a lot of people on the spiritual journey or who are grappling with the questions of their spiritual life um, should not be isolated in that inquiry. So that's what we're up to whenever we, uh, whenever we you know, have dialogue here on the show. So I see Josh is calling in. Let's see if we can get him on the line. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm great. I'm wonderful. Thanks for um, your patience this morning with the technical. Appreciate it. No, no problem at all. Those things happen to me all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I've already I've been talking about you for the last few minutes and just kind of giving people a recap who haven't had the opportunity to listen to our first three sh- three shows together. 
because um, I know that when we started all this, you know, we had an intention of talking about the Bible in new ways and um, just giving some perspectives that might be healing or might answer some questions for people. And so I've explained to everybody, you know, how I came upon you at the Wild Goose Festival a couple years ago and just said, oh, man, that's somebody that I've, I've got to have a conversation with and I, and I want to know and and, of course, I'm really sad we didn't get more time to connect this summer. What That was just so crazy. <laughs> yeah, it seemed Did like Wild Goose this year was just, was just a blur. Yeah. Went so fast. Well, I, I, hope, I, hope that, I hope that you had a lot of opportunities to connect with people that didn't know you before because I, I certainly, you know, that I, that I just hope that all this culminates in, like, Joshua Adam Scott writing many books and and speaking in many places. So absolutely. Well, so um Yeah, yeah, I really feel that way. So, you know, let's um let's kind of dive in today cuz we only have we have an hour. We have a solid hour. I think 50 50 minutes from this point. So, I know that once we get talking, it's going to we're going to run out of time, but um you know, when you and I spoke yesterday and I was saying, hey, you know, what what is it we really want to talk about? And I threw out some ideas and then I said, you know, let's just, what if we talked about who Jesus is and is not? And if we really like went there and and you said, well, that's my favorite thing to talk about. So that's what yeah. we want to talk about this morning. So I put out some really tough questions. I know that you read some of them and, you know, Possibly, I'm hoping that you have this amazing starting point to launch us off <laughs> this morning. <laughs> but um, what's on your what's on your mind? I mean, I sent you some questions. What is it that you think is a good place to start when we're talking about Jesus? Well, the thing that I've thought more and more about recently, uh, and I've actually just uh, I'm going to be on. We recorded last week a friend of mine, uh, Carla Ewart. She has a podcast called Holy Writ, and she interviews people who, uh, and, and basically you just pick a book and she talks to you about the book. And I picked this book called Lamb by a guy named Christopher Moore. And it, it's fiction, but it's about, basically, it's, and it's funny, but it basically deals with the missing years of Jesus. And it's this friend of Jesus named Biff, uh, who was Jesus' best friend, who got left out of the story. And he, they bring him back, God brings him back to life and he tells the real story, right? And what, mm-hmm. what I thought about when I was reading that book was that there's this whole interest people have in Jesus in the missing years of Jesus that nothing's recorded about. And so, so here's my starting point. I think one of the things we do is we begin with wanting to discuss the divinity of Jesus and how all that works. And I think that's the wrong starting point. I think to have a really meaningful, um, enlightening discussion about Jesus, you have to begin with the humanity of Jesus because whatever else he may have had going on, Jesus was a human being. Um, and so I think we have to begin with this. When we talk about this person, Jesus of Nazareth, who lived 2,000 years ago, who led this kingdom of God movement, who challenged the powers, uh, religious and political powers of his day, which really were two sides of the same coin. Um, he challenged them. He was executed by them. Like the, This is an actual human life doing human things. Um, and I think we have to begin there. Mm. And so what is it that um, you, I mean, what kind of 
um, commentary can you add to, because I do see all these books all the time about the missing years of Jesus. And I mean, how, why do you think that's important? And what, and, and what do you think about those years? I mean, do you have personal opinions about that? I don't really. I mean, I think that um, it's, I just think it's an unknowable, but I do think it's, I think the reason people are interested is because um, I mean, I think Christianity started to struggle as far as being connected to the, the roots that, that it came from when it moved outside of the Jewish world into the Greco-Roman world and really took on more a flavor of Plato than Jesus, if you understand what I mean by that. It was the Christian theology. Mm-hmm. For example, some of the earliest debates about the, how many natures did Jesus have, one nature or two natures, and you have you know, people saying that Jesus only appeared to be human, which is a very early heresy. So you, you have the struggle for people to be able to let Jesus be human at all and rush to this trying to describe Jesus' divinity. Um, and I, I think some of that desire to know about the missing years is that we, I think there's just, we have this intuitive realization that people, especially people who have spent a lot of time around Jesus, you know, Jesus stuff, that we, we really know that Jesus was human. And we know that whatever made Jesus Jesus happened in those years. Right, it happened right. before he went public. Whatever his experiences of God were, whatever his, um, you know, some people think he's. Uh, and in this book I was describing, which, which is just it's funny, but it's also kind of poignant at times. He goes and he, he's tracking down the three magi, and he's, you know, going and learning about Buddhism from one, and he's learning about, uh, you know, these different mindful mindfulness practices. And you know, there's people. Some people think that Jesus had some time outside of Israel and that he learned. I mean, there are lots of common sayings between Jesus and the Jesus and the Buddha, for example. I mean, I, I feel like it's unlikely that a peasant, because Jesus was a peasant, a poor peasant Galilean would have ever traveled outside of his home area. You know what I mean? Like, it just it's just not feasible for somebody mm-hmm. like Jesus to have been able to do that. Uh, I, you know, I think Jesus was, I think he was shaped by being a peasant under the Roman Empire. I think that he, you know, probably real losses in his life early on. I mean, there was a, a revolt in 4 BCE, uh, at the death of King Herod, there was a revolt in a town called Sepphoris, which was four miles from Jesus' town of Nazareth. Um, some scholars think it's likely that, you know, Jesus' father Joseph would have maybe even been killed in that. So uh, the, the point is, I mean, they crucified 2,000 people outside the city in that revolt, and it was four miles from Jesus' home. So it's very likely that Jesus grew up under the, under the shadow of a cross in a big way because he had experienced mm. what happens when you resist the empire. And so, I, you know, there, there's a reason Jesus gravitated toward the poor. There's a reason Jesus gravitated toward the marginal, the left out. I mean, these are likely experiences that shaped him in his own life in those formative years that, that kind of drew him t- to those people in those contexts in that work. Mm. You know, and it makes sense to me in the society that we live in today where where we're very tuned in to not necessarily how uh, the stage at which a leader is a, is a leader and well known, but all the struggle that happened to get them there, and of course we're tuned into well, you know, who we who we are now has a lot to do with our upbringing and our families. These are conversations we have today that weren't had 30 and 40 years ago. So, I, and I get you know people that are asking questions and and, ha- and half the world is vested in in um, Christianity. I don't know if that's a true figure, but you know what I mean. And so it's like I get why these questions are important, you know. Um, but 
you know, I think for the, the spiritual person, um, which is obviously the direction that I come from, there's always this, this question of what's been left out so that I, so is, there, is there a place where I can get enough information that's been left out that I'll be able to make total peace with Jesus as being a real and actual and um, uh, a thing that I can can either reconcile my, where I left off with that or I can go back to it and have more peace about it. And so I, I find that whenever I'm in communication with spiritual people that that they want to go to the Dead Sea Scrolls and they want to go to the Lost Gospels of so-and-so. And that's where they're most comfortable entering the conversation because they want to talk about what's been left out. And I think there's a desire to make some peace with it. They're still looking for something that says it's okay for me to, um, like, love Jesus. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. My answer to that would be yes and no. I would say, uh, mm-hmm. you know, with, with these with these. Gospels that have been discovered, for example, you know, Thomas, the Gospel of Thomas has similarities with some of the canonical Gospels. But I think what we're wanting with that is, I mean, so what we have at these these other Gospels that have been discovered, and who knows what we're missing, right? But one of the things we have is we mm-hmm. have how later branches and eras of Christians tried to reconcile Jesus. So, you know, coming up on you know, the Gospel of Judas or something, for example, in my opinion, it's super interesting historically to study it, to see how Christianity de- developed and grew and how different branches of Christian, Christian tradition began to interpret things. But it doesn't get us closer mm. to the historical Jesus, if that makes sense. So it's super helpful in understanding mm. how Christianity morphed and changed. It's not really helpful in understanding who Jesus was because these Gospels were written much, much, much later. Um, I mean, you're, you're talking the Gospels we have, the four we have in the New Testament, the earliest, Mark, which happens to be my favorite uh, of the Gospels, probably, uh, was written around the year 70, and Jesus mm-hmm. died somewhere in the mid, mid, mid to late 20s to early 30s. Uh, the earliest things we have about Jesus in the Bible are in, are in Paul's letters, Paul's genuine seven letters. Uh, where he rarely ever, if ever, I mean, just a couple times will mention a quote of Jesus. It doesn't seem like, you know, at times it seems like Paul's unaware of a lot. <laughs> uh, a, a lot of <laughs> right. uh, And at times, you know, I mean, there's this whole bit in Romans 12 and 13 where Paul basically does his own version of the Sermon on the Mount. So, uh, you know, it seems like he's aware in some ways, but he doesn't really quote Jesus extensively. So, uh, you know, I think that, mm. so in that regard, I would say no. Uh, those sorts of things really don't help us make peace with who the historical Jesus was. I, I think that there are mm-hmm. scholars who are doing this work, and some people just kind of poo-poo this work. I, you know, I think sort of doing historical reconstruction, uh, Jesus scholarship, textual criticism, those kind of things, um, you know, some of the work that Jesus Seminar has done, which, which you can you know, agree or disagree with. But I think there is this desire to get, you know, to figure out what the core message is. And as best, you know, I've read pretty extensively on this, um, it's, it's something I really find fascinating. I, I think that one of the things I, I think is absolutely true, uh, and there's not a lot of things I think are absolutely true, but unquestionably true in my opinion, is that, the, that there was a human being who lived 2,000 years ago named Jesus of Nazareth. Like that's, for me, uh, one of those things that just is, and that this person gathered a following around this kingdom of God gospel message um, that seems to be true to me. 
Very true. And then the, the thing that I find fascinating is, I mean, if you study failed messiahs, because there were plenty of sort of failed revolutionaries who, who led revolts, you had, you know, Judas the Galilean, who I believe is responsible for the one around the birth of Jesus in 4 BC, but you had several others, and some are mentioned in the New Testament. Um, when these people died, when these revol- failed revolutionaries died, their followers were dispersed. And there's just something, and pe- lots of people have said this on progressive sides, conservative sides, everybody said this. Uh, it's super fascinating that the followers of Jesus didn't give up. So whatever whatever mm-hmm. Easter was, and I think there's a lot of room for a rich debate and discussion about what the Easter moment was or when the Easter moment was, um, I think that something happened that Jesus' disciples recognized that he wasn't really gone, that his presence, mm. uh, you know, the, the, the Emmaus story is the one that comes to mind in the Gospel of Luke where um, Jesus walks with them and he, they don't see him, but it's when they break bread that they find that they see Jesus. It's like when they gather together and do the thing he taught them to do, he's there. And they have this, uh, this realization that, that God has actually raised Jesus and that he's not somewhere else. He's right there with them still doing the work. So, I mean, I, I think you have to deal with the fact that the Christian movement even began. But I think to go further back, it just seems to me, even, even really skeptical um, and I, I appreciate a lot of Bart Ehrman's work, but he, you know he's pretty skeptical about a lot of things. He he affirms that Jesus was a historical figure. I, I just think that's a given. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that to be a historical mm-hmm. person means you're you have to be shaped by your time and place. There is no way around it. So in my mind, Jesus was a first century Jewish person who had these experiences of God, which pulled him in a different a bit of a different direction than his, uh, a lot of his fellow Israelites or uh, fellow um, Palestinians at the time. Mm. So for you, so for you, um, is it just a, obviously you've collected a lot of information over time, whether it's, you know, related to archeology span or, or whatever that has said, okay, um, there's this information in the Bible about his life. There's this information that they've found whenever they've gone to the sites where he lived. Has there been one particular thing that always brings you back to the truth that he lived? Is it like one thing that you can cite or is it a combination of all that? Um, I mean, honestly, to me, it would be just the the fact that the Christian movement began. It seems unlikely to to begin a movement around a failed hero. <laughs> right, mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. if, if you're, yeah. you're going to tell mm-hmm. a story, uh, it's not going to be the guy who gets crucified. It's going to be the guy who wins. Um, mm. And so, I, you know, it seems to me an unlikely thing for people to create and then die for. Um, so, I, I think that, his mm. disciples, that these disciples had a, an honest experience um, of this of this Christ that led them to changed the way they thought about the world, the way they were, what they were willing to do, how they were willing to love to the point of death. Like that, that just doesn't seem to be something you do when you have knowingly made up a character. You know what I mean? Like it just doesn't seem right. to be, and, and maybe, right. you know, anything's possible, I guess, but that, that there's just enough there, <laughs> there yeah. for me to, to have confidence that whatever I, and the, my struggle has always been, on the theological side, never on the human side. But I think the human side of Jesus 
for me is the easiest to get my head around in the sense of this is a human being who is doing some revolutionary work in his time and place. And, and even still when it's done well and when it's done faithfully, I think in our time and place, the, the work of Jesus is still revolutionary. Um, so yeah, right. it's a free, yeah, the problem has always been theology. So I can. So when you answer it that way, um, that's exactly what keeps me tied to this conversation. That's exactly why I don't give up on um, uh, Jesus because you know I can't, I can't I can't make sense out of that many people over this many number of years um, being being loyal to this um, journey. You know regarding um, who who he is, who he was, all that. So. So that keeps me tied to this conversation as well. But tell me a little bit, when you say your struggle has always been theological, what, what do you mean by that? I mean, I, I think some of the struggle I've had is, is the, the God talk of all of it and figuring out how that actually applies. Um, I, I think the rush mm-hmm. to make Jesus divine has actually uh, obscured the message of Jesus. It's obscured the work of Jesus. Um, so for me, when I talk about sort of this duality, uh, and I think duality is a bad word. I don't think Jesus, I think Jesus is a human being, right? First and foremost, Jesus is a human being, just like us, who was born in the world and had no additional information other than what people born in the world in his time and place had, okay? So I don't think Jesus grew up going, you know, by the way, uh, like on the playground, by the way, I'm the second person of the Trinity, and you should worship me. Like, I don't right. think that was Jesus self-understanding. I think Jesus was a person, though, who grew with an awareness and openness to God. And if you want to pinpoint it, one of the earliest and most scholars think this is a a story that goes back to the historical Jesus. So so in gospel studies, not not all stories are, are viewed to actually go back to the historical Jesus. Some are viewed to be creations of the community to describe their experiences of Jesus, right? Um, mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, mm-hmm. that is the, the bulk of the Gospel of John probably isn't going back to sayings from the historical Jesus or, even, or things like that. It's going back to this community saying, in this person of Jesus, we experience God in this way. Right? So John mm-hmm. is more theology than history. Uh, but one of those scholars almost across the board probably agree it has a historical connection is the baptism story of Jesus. So Jesus begins... If you take out the, the infancy stories, which uh, aren't in Mark or John, so in Mark is where I, I think my favorite book to study just because of its, early, it's earlier, um, it's, it's more uh, fast-paced. It seems like there's a lot of action going on. Uh, but if you, if you start with the, the Gospel of John, that's pretty much what begins. Jesus seems to become a disciple of John the Baptist. Um, and that as, you know, he, he has this baptism experience. And in this experience, he sees heaven opened and a dove, symbolic of the Spirit, alights on him, and he hears the voice of God. I mean, different Gospels say it differently. Sometimes other people hear it. Sometimes it's just him, depending on where you read and which Gospel. But he has this experience of the, the voice of God saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am pleased. And so it seems like whatever happened, Jesus' baptism was sort of a mystical experience for him that gave him a sense of calling and purpose because he eventually leaves John. He doesn't stay a disciple of John, and I actually think that there are certain distinctives between Jesus and John. Like their message doesn't end up being exactly the same, um, which is a whole other fascinating thing to talk about. 
but G- there, there are differences there. And so I think part of what happens for Jesus is in his baptism, he has an experience of God that he feels is called. So then this period in the desert, whether or not that goes back to Jesus or not, I think that period of fasting in the desert afterward, which is symbolic and reminiscent of Israel's 40 years in the desert, these 40 days, end up being mm-hmm. a way of talking about that Jesus had these formative experiences of God through these practices like fasting um, and that the encounters Jesus had with God were so shaping of him that uh, after his life, Christians would say things like this, when we've, if you see Jesus, you've seen God. Right? Because Jesus, mm. in, in some ways the whole Gospel of John is about Jesus inviting us to oneness with God. That Jesus is saying, I have experienced union with God, and that is the exact thing God wants to give every single person. A, a non-bounded, non, no boundaries, no separation, a union with God that, is, uh, that goes beyond sort of our even ability to understand what that even means. I think that's part, partly what John is saying. So I think that's what Jesus experienced, so much so that people who reminisced on his life were, were realized, gosh, we were, we were in the presence of God in the moments we were in the presence of Jesus. So when you talk about it this way, I imagine, um, you know, Jesus having these really mystical experiences and um, and I think of people today that people follow all over the world um, that have come since that time that have also had these really mystical experiences and have come out of them saying, you know, I this is what I have to teach you. This is how I can show you how to know God. This is um, a way that you can live where you can have what I have. And so in saying that, are you also saying that you're not sure that Jesus was here to be a savior and to be the only way? Is that a question that you have? Uh, That's just not even language that I would use at this point. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, so my understanding of the word salvation, for example, to use the word savior, uh, I think that salvation gains its meaning through the Exodus story and the Jew- Jewish Christian heritage. So salvation is ultimately about liberation. So, uh, yes, Jesus is here to, sh- to, to save us in a sense, of, uh, to save us from the things that bind us and the things that hold us back. And we use language for that called sin. We use language for that, you know, in our context, I would say not only sin, but the things that that produces like biases and phobias of people and, you know, all those sorts of things that we need to be liberated from. But I also think you have to understand historically that during the era Jesus lived, there was already a son of God who was savior of the world. It just so happened to be the Roman Caesar. So to say that Jesus is Lord and to call Jesus Savior is not just, it's not simply religious titles about a guy who came to save us and take us somewhere else. It's a political title saying that actually we think Jesus knows how to run the world better. I mean, this, this is why, I mean, you know, there's a Roman, Roman propaganda saying that Caesar is Lord. The first Christians to say Jesus is Lord, they were pushing back on that and saying actually we think Caesar is a big bunch of baloney, and we think Jesus is where the action is, and we should follow him. 
I mean, to, to say Jesus, you know, and I, I have a friend who's doing some really brilliant work on John 14 right now, and she's uh, actually <clears throat> she's, she's actually got a better take on it than I think anybody I've read. And one of the things I find interesting about John 14:6, which is where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, which is where we get that whole language of Jesus is the only way to God. Um, I, right. I don't think Jesus is saying, I am the mechanism through which God becomes okay with you. I think Jesus is saying in that moment, I am, I, I am, to say I am the way is for Jesus to say, I've experienced union with God, and I'm showing you the way to union with God. He doesn't mention the word yeah. heaven there. He doesn't say afterlife. He's talking about now. I am the way. Um, and so for me, anywhere I see the way of Jesus, the way of union with God, that way of love and peace, and God, like I assume that that's part of it, even if it doesn't wear the Christian label. <clears throat> so there are people, like I, I was okay. talking with somebody the other day. Who was, I'll, I'll, I'll stop there and we'll go. Yeah, I was I was stopping to let you. I thought you wanted to ask a question. No, no, I'm just. I thought that was so profound, actually, what you just said. Because um, let me just pause for a second with that before you before you go on. Because again, um, when you say when you say that when you say where I see the way, no matter no matter what religion kind of it's falling under, you know, I assume that this is that we're kind of talking about the same thing. Is that am I hearing you clearly whenever you say that? Yeah, and there are also times in the Christian tradition I don't see the way. When when Christianity becomes yeah. about, you know, dominance and and I heard a well known televangelist say that uh if Donald Trump gets impeached, Christians are gonna start a new civil war. That's not the way of Jesus. And when I see right. people um like these, these religious leaders who released the national statement yesterday essentially saying um, that if you're LGBT, you're essentially less than human, and if you support LGBTQ people, then you're not really a Christian. Like when I see that, I think, gosh, that's, you know, closing off the table, that's not the way of Jesus either. So mm. just because it's Christian doesn't mean it has anything to do with Jesus. And just because it may not wear a Christian label, it actually – uh, the, the, and I love the language of uh, Roar and others about the cosmic Christ, um, but it, it doesn't mean that the cosmic Christ is not right in the middle of it. We, we are like Jesus' disciples. Who, uh, there's, a, there's a story in the Gospels where there's somebody going around doing healing, and they want to stop this person because he's not one of them. But, like He's not wearing our T-shirt. We've got to stop the guy. And Jesus says, why would you stop somebody liberating people from oppression why would you stop somebody bringing healing whoever's not against you is for you and so i think the christian mm. tradition has been one of trying to close rank and and have a narrowly defined set of beliefs that defines who's in and who's out Well, the jesus tradition has been this expansive we're, we're going to try to find everybody in every way in the world who's doing this way and we're going to celebrate that that's happening uh, it's just a very different way of I think the Jesus way and the Christian way sometimes don't even don't connect in places. I cannot. I I just really can't even tell you like how profound this particular part of this conversation is for me because you know when when I came away from the goose and I understood that um, that I needed to move into you know pastoring and and ministering and being a part of all this and somebody who 
um, has always seen the way without having that same language in, in all these things in the world around me. And most of those things were not inside churches and most, and many of those things were not inside Christianity. And so, and, and, but also that that heart that I have for Jesus always being very alive inside of me. And so there's almost, when you speak about this, it, it, even though I, I know the truth, I've already known the truth of what you're saying, there's even more permission for me to understand what I'm up to here. And I think more permission for other people who are, um, you know, not bashing churches, because there's amazing churches, but there's, there, there's people that are leaving by the masses because they're trying to find the exact truth that you just articulated. And it hasn't been okay so far to do that. Right. And so um, I feel it's so important, you know, like in community, in the community that I hold, it's more we just use spiritual languaging. But we don't but but I've made it really known that we include um, Jesus in this conversation at all times, because the way is the way is the way, no matter how the way is going down. You know, is that you know what I'm saying? here? Yeah. Yeah, And so it's just for you for you to say it. For for you to say it better than I can say it. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. I'm I'm like firecracker. I'm, right <laughs> I'm not. I'm just translating other people who said it far better than I could. Is all I'm doing. Um, <laughs> I mean, this is not. The frustrating thing for me was to be 20 some years old and realize that this stuff had always been out there and I had never been exposed to it. That this way of perceiving right. the world. Um, and, and the way I would articulate it, I think. Um, the biggest problem is, and this is probably going to shock you, but sometimes I get messages from people who quote Matthew 7 and talk about false prophets, and they're directing that at me, <clears throat> which, you know, uh, yeah. is always yeah. interesting. Uh, but that very text, to me, it, from the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about, uh, you know, you, you will know people by their fruit. Well, when people mm. read that, they, what, they mean, what, they interpret, what they read it as is you will know them by their doctrine. You will know them by their beliefs. You will know them by the, the specific counsels they affirm or the specific creeds they affirm. But that's not what Jesus says. Fruit isn't belief. Fruit is life. Fruit is what you actually do. Fruit is the thing that reveals, regardless of what doctrines you affirm, your fruit, what you actually do in the world and how you treat people, that reveals who you really are and what you really ultimately believe. And so I, I've just never been bothered by being called a false prophet because of what I say or what I believe, uh, my concern, and mm. the thing I'll always invite people to is, is you know, if, if, if you spend time with me and my life is not becoming more compassionate and kind, more Jesus-like, then, yes, I, will, I, I need to do an about-face completely. And there are some days I struggle with becoming Jesus-like because I just do, like everybody. But I think the reality is, mm. for me, I, I no longer sit around and worry, do I have the right beliefs? I sit around and wonder, what, what kind of person am I becoming? And so I was talking to a lady the other day who was saying, talking about her husband who <clears throat> will never come to church. And a few weeks ago it was a friend who had an atheist family member who wouldn't go to church. And in both of these conversations I've learned to ask this question, tell me about the kind of person they are. <clears throat> and so when they tell me about that, they're, like, oh, they're just they're, they're the best. I mean, outside of not going to church, they really are the best. They're, they're kind, they're compassionate, they're generous, they're good. What can we say to make them be Christian. Like, well, I think they already are. If by Christian you mean somebody who's bearing good fruit, somebody who's bearing good fruit and, and embodying the way of Jesus, it, it's actually probably the language of religion 
that has pushed them away. Um, and they have found that they're able to embody and live. Now, I believe in being a part of a religious community, partly because that's where I get my paycheck, but partly because I think being in community and being able to discuss these things and grow with people is really, really important, right? Like doing this in isolation is not the way that Jesus even had, I don't think, wanted, wanted things to be in the world. I think Jesus was deeply communal. He calls followers. He travels with people. Um, so I, I think being a part of community is important, um, and I also think people won't go to church because they've been so taught that if you don't believe everything the church believes, um, then you can't be a part of it. And what, what we're trying to, what I'm trying to do is say, at, at MCC, for example, where, I, where I'm a pastor, here's the thing about us: we we do not have uh, a, a belief litmus test to be a part of this church. Here's the thing we want to center on: we want to center on values. Because nobody ever shares all the same beliefs. If you want to go to a church where the pastor has shares all the beliefs that you have, you're never going to find it. And if you want to go to a church where everybody in the room affirms all the same things all the time, you're just never going to find it. So we try to gather around common values, ways we treat people, practices we do, things we do in the world to try to make the world better. Like we can build a community around those things. But I think so many people have been turned off because they've, they've had this idea, you have to check your brain, you have to check your opinions, you have to check your experiences, and you just have to affirm these three or four things, or 15 things usually, that this church wants you to affirm. And, and I feel like that's ultimately destructive to the spiritual life, and it's destructive to people becoming the best versions of themselves. And so I think you have to create lots and lots of space for people to say, Gosh, I disagree. I disagree. on. I mean, I just have people who are really I'm really close to who at the end of a sermon will Say to me, no, nah, I didn't. I didn't buy any of that. And yet, we're, we're good <laughs> friends, and they're vital. They're vital parts of our community, and we can still do things together uh, because we've we've decided that our values, the kinds of people we want to become, sort of trump all the little beliefs that could fragment us. Mm. So. So I have to ask you this question because I don't know if there's a listener who's thinking the same thing. And you've touched on this with me a little bit before. So so it's just bringing it up for the sake of asking. But So based on what you said, based on the community that you just described and based on the fact that, you know, you're saying really, you know, all, this, all the fruits that you just explained of this person – uh, ma'am, you know, like when you're talking to her, are indicate that that I think they already are Christian. So, so why not in that whole philosophy? Why not just become a Unitarian um, church body, or a um, like completely depart from? Um, well, that's how I ask the question. Why not do that? A couple of reasons. I mean, everybody in our community wouldn't be comfortable with that, first of all. But the real, for me, the real reason is the, the Christian tradition is my mother tongue. Um, it, mm-hmm. Jesus is the way I relate to the divine. I, I can experience the divine in lots of other ways, I believe. But Jesus, Jesus has mattered to me in my life, and Jesus has mattered to the people in our community. So I think, and I, and I have a friend who we exchange emails about this whenever we're having a bad day, but. You know, I got an email where he said, why in the world are we still devoting our time to preserving these institutions when we don't need them to make God love us and we don't need them to be good people and we don't – and, and I, you know, when he asked me that the first time, I thought, gosh, I really don't have an answer for that. <laughs> but I thought about it. And right, yeah. I, 
I, I think we, I, the work I'm doing and the work others are doing matters so much because there are people on the journey who will never be able to leave behind maybe more uh, narrow, hateful sort of versions of this thing. And they will never be able to leave that mm-hmm. behind and move forward into a more expansive and generous and inclusive understanding if people like us don't stay mm-hmm. and, and connected and help them take those steps forward. And so in some ways, I think the work we're doing is the work of midwifing. You know, there's this new thing being born in the world, and, and in order to help people participate in that, some of us have to decide that, yeah, we could go do this other thing and we could be fine, but there are people who will never be able to, to, to move beyond where they are right now if we don't stay and help invite them, guide them, teach them, listen to them, discuss with them. Like all that, all the important things you do in community with each other, if we don't stay and help sort of bring that process along with them. And, and so, you know, uh, yeah, I, I could, there's any number of things I could do with my, my life when it comes to spirituality and faith and those sorts of things. Doing this feels like at this point in my life, part of the thing I, I feel drawn to is just helping people through this journey. I cannot believe you just used the word midwifing. And I had just this major awareness of, I think, why um, I just saw kind of the whole, like, archetypal story of why I'm just so drawn to your work and what you stand for because people have used the word midwifing with me and with the Lighthouse Spiritual Center and even with the Spiritual Charlotte podcast. But I'm midwifing from not the other side of the fence, but, I, you know, I came to this later in life, I feel like, as opposed to knowing about this when I was 19. And so, and I didn't come from it already being in the in church. I came from it, you know, having removed myself from all that and exploring it from the outer edges. And so, so I see myself sort of stationed here, holding space for people that have already exited the spiritual community to give them a bridge to walk back over and see some of the truths that they completely left behind because it was so intolerable, right? Like the, like everything around the truth was so intolerable. So they just completely split. And so I see myself midwifing them back to that point of like wholeness where they don't show up with the wounds that the religion gave them. And they're able to have dialogue that enters into the religious without crawling out of their skin. Right. And they're able to see, Oh, wait a minute. There's, 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 there's figures here that, um, that there's still a major truth and magic in that situation. It's something that I want to be in my life along with all the rest. And I see you kind of on the other side of that, saying I'm going to stay in the church. I'm stationed here so that people that are coming from the far ends of the church, the far right ends of the church, can meet me up here when they're ready so that we can kind of get to more, you know, more of that center place as well. Do you see what I'm saying? I do. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I had a friend um, who uh, her her mom came to our church a few years ago, and her mom grew up Catholic, really sort of restrictive uh, upbringing for her. And she, when she got old enough, she left the church and she became Buddhist, and she's been Buddhist her whole life. And she came to our church a couple years ago. And at the end of the sermon, um, she came up to me and she said, this is the first time I felt comfortable and safe and welcome in a church ever. And she said, mm, I... Yeah. Uh, I, I had to go, and I'll never come back, but I'm really glad you stayed. And I thought it's so uh, so interesting that she would have that experience. Like, I can't be – this is not a healthy, safe environment for me. There's just too much water under the bridge. But I'm really glad that 
that, that there are people who are trying to help people um, be able to stay. Oh, God, that is so profound. Oh, man. Okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here like I feel like of all the conversations we've had, this one's going to push me over some type of edge. I don't know what the edge is yet. <laughs> this, this one's really hit, hitting the spot for me this morning. Um, so, you know, I'm already panicking because we only have about 10 minutes left, and I, I'm, I just, I'm like, there's just not enough time. But, um, you know, what is it that – Regardless of religious affiliation or unaffiliation, um, what is it that the precise teachings that are available to us today from Jesus, uh, like what do we need? How can we know Jesus in new ways? No matter, no matter if we're standing in the church, outside of it, in Buddhist culture, wherever we are, um, I really want to get a grasp on that for people that are just. Um, want to keep that place in their heart open what yeah. what can we leave so with I, understanding you know i had a professor uh, in grad school who was jewish non-practicing jewish and in, in class he uh, asked me once um, he said if you had to throw away the whole bible but you could only keep one section of it one chapter, one whatever, like one little bit, what would you keep? And it just sort of was an instinctive answer. I never thought about that question, but the answer just flew out of my mouth even almost before I thought about it. I said, I would keep the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, that's the right answer. <laughs> I guess that's what he was thinking. Mm. Too. Uh, but, but so for me, um, and there was a period of time when I, uh, the whole theological, spiritual side of things, I couldn't say very much about, and I'm much more comfortable there now. But there's a time I could say very little, and I just would talk about the, the sort of the teaching of Jesus and the Son on the Mount because, for me, that, I think that's where we go to discover what kind of world could we have if we all approached one another from this way. What would it look like if we mm-hmm. could actually, um, you know, uh, if we could actually begin first? The, the, the big one for me is what if we could learn to love our enemies? Uh, and, I mean, when you look at the world we live in right now where you, you have, <clears throat> like, n- nuclear nuclear proliferation again, you have all sorts of, uh, I mean, just thinking about Charlottesville and the evil of white supremacy and, and injustice and uh, just all these things in our world uh, that we're not going to defeat by having bigger guns or bigger bombs or uh, being meaner than uh, the ultimate, the only way we can truly because when, when we fail to love our enemies, when we allow ourselves to creep into hating our enemies, then we are just as bound and just as uh, – I mean, hate is hate regardless of where it is. So when, when we begin to hate our enemies, it, it kind of turns the valve off in us of being able to have access to, uh, I think, the things we need to actually, to actually ultimately turn history in the right direction. And I find that in the teaching of Jesus, you know, with, with how we treat people, how we live, how we live, you know, authentically, how we live a whole sort of existence and not a fragmented, broken existence. So I, I just find, I think Jesus is, I actually think Jesus is quite brilliant. Um, I don't know if you knew that, but I do. <laughs> what is something else, another thing, or Sermon on the Mount, what is, what is another message that we can glean from that? 
I mean, I, I, I think there are so many. I think that Jesus' attention to the marginalized, um, which he begins to sort of out with the Beatitudes, but I think it's interesting that you can have entire religious systems that are, are, are only in existence for their own existence, right? I mean, uh, uh, they only exist because they think they have to, and they have tons of money tied up <clears throat> in just making the system keep going um, and, and not really offering anything to the marginalized of the world. Like how, how many pastors, how many pastors, and I'll just say I've had conversations with so many of them, how many pastors will, will, will not stand up for our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, for example, even though deep down they know it's the right thing to do and it's the right side of history, and yet they won't use their voice because it's going to affect their pay. It's going to affect their church attendance. Mm. It's going to affect, um, you know, how many people, uh, how many pastors won't get up on a Sunday morning uh, the day after something like Charlottesville happened and say, hey, can we just all take a moment to recognize the evil of white supremacy, the evil of this uh, racism that is going on and, and somehow is in vogue in our country again. Um, like, it's just true. There's a cost. There's a cost to saying what's right. There's a cost to standing on the right side of history because it's uncomfortable. And lots of people don't want to talk about white supremacy because they don't want to think that they've benefited from it. And the reality is uh, I have. Right in ways mm-hmm. I don't even know, mm-hmm. I've benefited from white supremacy. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like mm-hmm. you know, when, when you challenge, when, when you stand up, when you say the thing that needs to be said, even when your voice shakes, there's a risk that comes with that. And so I, I just think that lots and lots of people don't want to take those risks. Um, and and I, I really, honest, honestly, want, like I don't know what that would be like internally. It's just a thing I couldn't do. I couldn't live that way. I couldn't live feeling like I was selling out what I really deeply believe to be true and right just to keep a paycheck. Mm. I, I value my paycheck. <laughs> I, I don't value it yeah, more than the ability yeah, to I, Yeah. Well, wrapping all this up, you know, I, I can't help, first of all, any comment about Joel Olstein or you want to avoid that altogether? <laughs> Uh, Any comment you know, about that situation? <laughs> I, uh, I, I've, I've followed it very sort of from a distance. I haven't read any of the articles or anything like that. I, I think that with those to whom much is given, much is required. And uh, I, I'm glad to see that they've decided to open their church up as a shelter. Um, yeah. I, I, that was obviously the right yeah. thing to do. And. Uh, However, that yeah. gets spun. Why they did? Like, I don't know. I don't know. But it's you know, I, I think yeah. I think they've hopefully finally got around to the right decision. Yeah. Good. Okay. That's probably all that needs to be said about that. So, um, you know, Josh, I'm walking away from this conversation. Um, you know, when people ask me if I'm a Christian, and um, I never know how to answer the question because of this love I have and this heart I have for the spiritual work and this heart I have for midwifing all this stuff together so that people can have more um, peace in their hearts about their journeys, you know. And um, do you think I can call myself a Christian? And I think here's the frustrating thing about language is 
people in Westboro Baptist get to call themselves Christian. And I don't mm-hmm. get to say they're not. Because they say they mm-hmm. are, right? You have Christians who are calling for civil war if Donald Trump gets impre- impeached. I don't get to say they're not. You, you know, you have, you have people who, are, who use their faith, you know, for example, with, with certain, certain branches of faith that produce, you know, they, they use their faith to support terrorism, and, and we don't get to say they're not, right, because they claim it. So I think if you want to be a Christian, you, you get to be one. Um, I also agree with you, though, that I have a hard time saying to people, Right now, especially growing up evangelical and seeing what an absolute cluster that has become in, in, our, in my lifetime, just how essentially evangelical Christianity has sold its birthright, and it didn't even get a bowl of really good soup for it, right? It, it just got a bunch of crap, if I can say that. Like, that's all it got. And that is what – so for me, it's very hard to claim those titles many times. When I get to the so, – so sometimes I just – like, I don't know what I am. I am seeking to live in the way of Jesus. Mm. Generously, kindly, compassionately, I am seeking to live in the way of Jesus. Um, I think yeah. if if you want to be a Christian, if you want to say I am a person, and if you define Christian in the very narrow sense of a person who is seeking to follow Jesus, you know, then that that is the exact thing I want to be because I think Jesus is showing me what it looks like to be one with God. If you define Christian as being evangelical who holds these perspectives and this atonement theory and this and this and this, well, I'm, you know, I'd be out on that. So I, I get, mm. that's the thing is word, words are funny and it depends on who's defining them. Because I think most yeah, many God, of the ways that, people would define Christian, you wouldn't want to be that. You know what I mean? Exactly, yeah. That's something I'm going to be thinking about the way you've just put that. I really appreciate it. Well, I have to tell you, it makes me so sad to know that this is the last show in the the initial series we created, but I promise you I'm going to be coming up with an excuse to do more. <laughs> oh, well, I so would be so excited now, about that. I, mean, I love doing this. Okay. Okay, so I'll come calling sooner or later to to uh to find out what else we can uh can talk about. So Thank you so much for your time. I want to know that people can find you. I want people to know that they can find you at joshuaadamscott.com. And um, yep. and we will definitely have you back. Well, I, I really look forward to it, Kendall. It's always fun to chat with you. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. And, Josh, I'll talk to you soon. And um, enjoy your week. Thanks. You too. Okay. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening to Spiritual Charlotte this Wednesday. We'll be back next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Talk to you soon.